Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, and then we'll read down through verse 8 of chapter 8. So Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want... I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with the mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, may the Lord help us as we look at that um, significant portion of Scripture this morning. Well, let's turn our hearts and uh, seek the Lord together. Let's pray. Our glorious King, we come to lay our praise and our gratitude at your throne. You are worthy of all the praise, and none of us can bring words that would really match that majesty or the splendor that transcends the highest archangel's thoughts, the greatest theologian, or the most genuine and earnest believer's heart. 
You know that when we come to you, Father, our heart is often uh, cold and distracted, but there are times where by your help it's full and overflowing. And we understand what the psalmist means when he says that he had the tongue of a ready writer to speak of the glories of his king. And we gather up our thoughts of you and we try to lay them before you in a way that's appropriate and we feel like we're little children stumbling over our words. And at the end of our best efforts at praise, we know that if you do not accept it through the finished work of Christ, it could not be acceptable. We lisp and stammer and stutter a few truths that you've let us as children come to grip with. But there's so much more that could be said of you. We come to you to give, us, to give you our thanks and not just praise. It's not just that you're great and beyond description. It's not just that your perfections transcend all creation and overflow the boundary of every idea, of, of every category we can come up with in our minds. It's that we owe you so much grateful love for how you have ruled, how, have, how you have expressed the truths in a book so that we can understand them. And we're not left to wander about wondering if we're on the right path or what, what you are like. The psalmist calls the whole world to rejoice because you, you are the king of the whole thing. Even those who have rejected you and turned their hearts toward just another form of emptiness. Even they have reason to praise you and thank you. We see the common grace everywhere. We've experienced your common grace when we were uninterested in you, you were not indifferent. When we turned our back on you, you didn't pull away from us the things we needed for life. So God, we pray that your kindness would break our hearts. That our ugly, shameful response to the perfect king would break our hearts. But that you would do more than break our hearts. We just sang it. Spirit of God, take us by the hand and show us the cross and just trample into dust our pride and destroy our every objection and our excuses that we feel have just... It's like they formed a perfect barrier against you, some great stone fortress that we hide in from your claims. But God, I pray that you would crush those and you would expose us and you would hunt us down and corner us. And when we think that you've come to destroy us, would you speak to our hearts in such kindness that we never recover? We want to be amazed at grace and not at justice. We deserve for you to turn your back on us and for you never to have anything to do with any of Adam's fallen race. And you, you, why would you have anything to do with people with, who have minds, who have thought things like our minds have thought or eyes or ears or a mouth? 
that we've willfully devoted to things that offend you? Why do you care? How do you even know specks of dust are here on this planet? But you do. So we thank you and we ask that having given us your law that shows us the path of love for you, love for humanity, a path that is one that, that its, its travelers are characterized by an enviable happiness. Lord, teach us today how we, in this day, in this place, how could we walk with you for your glory and God for our happiness? We pray that you would do that all across our world, that you would conquer with your love, that you would awaken, that you would strengthen, that you would revive, get your children out of the dust, that you would give such hope and boldness and clear guidance and protection that your name would be exalted in every corner of this world, in every little city and town. We ask that you would do it, God, for your name's sake, and we do ask it in the name of our mediator. Amen. Well, let's look together at um, the law and how the Christian should approach it, or how do we understand it. So we've been talking about the moral law, the, the Ten Commandments. And last week, if you remember, we had nine basic uh, elemental you know, realities. If you look at the Bible, what does the Bible say about how you're supposed to approach God's moral law? There are those aspects of the Old Testament and its laws that are laid aside that Christ has fulfilled. And there are those aspects of God's law which are timeless. They came before Moses, wrote them down on Sinai, and they last long after. The other things that Moses wrote on Sinai are no longer applicable. So how do we approach them? Because there certainly are wrong ways to approach the law, and there are right ways. And we don't want to be like the Pharisees who approach the law kind of from the perspective that we think would be best. You know, this is how I want to approach the law. Or this is probably how God would want us to approach the law. And we could become the kind of people whose mouths are full of God's word, but our hearts are far from him. So how do we understand the Ten Commandments and the part that they play in the ongoing life of a believer in the New Covenant? Now, we've talked about last week, I, I gave nine things and I said there is a tenth one, but we'll hit it next week. It wasn't because I ran out of time. I, I'm always running out of time, but it was because I wanted to us just to focus on that one this morning. God has given us the map that Jesus of Nazareth used. He hands it on to us. Every believer has walked by this map. What pleases God? What displeases God? How does... How does that direct the way we show God our love and love to man? The map is perfect. The law is pure and good. But the path, the map, has never once given those who are traveling on it the strength to take the next step. The map is perfect. 
but no map is designed to give you the energy to make the journey. The law is perfect. It can point the way to what pleases or, and warn us against what displeases God. The path has Christ's footprints in it and every other believer before and since. But that path does not fuel or strengthen or encourage you. There is no hope in the map. There is no hope in the path when we're thinking of the question, so how does a Christian live out this life of obedience? I, I want to live a Godward life. And so I see the map. And I say, okay, so is that the, is that the hope? Well, no, the map is not the hope. So what I want us to look at this morning is the tenth thing that the scripture gives about approaching the law. And maybe we can sum it up like this. The believer walks along the path of God's moral commands. The believer obeys, loves God, loves man. And they do that by walking in and with and by the person of the Holy Spirit. So we keep the moral law, not by the strength of the law, but by the constant aid of a person, the divine person that lives in the believer, the spirit. And I want us to look at that this morning. Now, a couple of months ago, and it, it probably is, you know, you know how I am with time. Uh, I would say a couple months ago, it's probably six months ago that we looked at the theme when we talked about being followers of Christ, can a, can a man, can a woman, can a young person really be discipled by Jesus Christ today? Could you follow Christ today like they followed him then? Not with eyesight, but like Paul, by faith. You have the word of God, you have the spirit, you have the people of God, and Paul clearly followed Christ. So can you follow Christ? Well, yes, every believer can and must. And we talked about the fact that you have to understand how gloriously sufficient Jesus is if you're going to, to take that seriously. Otherwise, you know, it, you're just left looking at yourself. And so maybe some days you wake up and you look in the mirror and you're impressed. You think, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I'm putting to, I'm putting to death those, those sins that have plagued me in the past. I, I've got a pretty you know, clean record for this long and, and I'm, I'm learning new things and in self-confidence, you kind of go out to the face today and you flop or you get up and you look in the spiritual mirror and you think, there's no hope. I've tried it before. I mean, I know I'm saved by grace and I'm thankful for that. I'm justified by the finished work of Christ. But if you're asking me, will I live a life of obedience? And I'm not talking about sinless, flawless obedience, just a life distinguished by the basic pattern of choosing God's will over your own. Well, if you're talking about that, you know, you look in the mirror and say, I, there's just no hope. So we've got to look at the sufficiency of Christ. How does the fullness of Jesus as your representative, as your mediator, how does that get from Christ to you? 
how does that get from the pages of the Bible into your heart and soul and thoughts, your memory, your imagination, your choices? And for that, we're looking at the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is God, who, as the third person of the triune God, has been entrusted by the Father and the Son with applying all that the Father has planned in redemption, in the new covenant, all that the Son has purchased by finishing what the Father gave him to do in the new covenant. Now, all of that planning and purchasing has been entrusted into the mighty hands of the third person of our God. The Spirit of God is entrusted with completing the great work of redemption. Not just working out in the world, but working in the individual believer. And by his work, the rescue that the father planned and the son purchased will be completed. Now, let's stop and think a little bit about the spirit before we look at some key passages. Because I suppose that when we think of the triune nature of God, which is a mystery, one God described in three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But we do not have three gods. And I can't explain that. We've talked about that in a, a number, uh, maybe a year ago on Wednesday nights, we looked at something of the, the doctrine of the Trinity. But let's just try to be clear about the, the person of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, and this is what one theologian says. And I think he says it in a simple and a clear way. He is not one-third God, but fully God. Yet it is not the Spirit alone who is fully God, but He eternally exists along with the Father and the Son, each of whom also possess fully the identically same divine nature. Because of this, what distinguishes the Spirit from the Father and the Son is not the divine nature of the Spirit. So it's not, well, the Spirit is not the Father and the Spirit is not the Son because He's fully God, but He possesses the same divine nature as the Father and the Son. So what distinguishes the Spirit is not this one undivided divine nature possessed equally and fully by all three persons. It is His role as Spirit in the way he relates to father and son. And we see that so clearly in the way God is working out our salvation. All three persons of the Trinity in that work so clearly seen. Now, when we think of the Spirit, of course, there are some basic problems that immediately we find that we have. Because the Spirit is often presented in the Bible as, uh, you know, in, in his activity within the church or in the believer or through a prophet, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as a force, as a, as a divine energy, as an it. But he is not an it. He is a person. He is a person and possesses the traits of personhood or personality, just like the Father and the Son. But when we think again of the work of salvation, 
The Spirit is the great expression of the Father and the Son's love for you. When the Son finished His labors on earth and was exalted to the right hand of the Father, enthroned not merely as eternal God, but as the God-man. So now, at the right hand of God, there sits a man entrusted with the rule and governance of all creation. The God-man. So there our humanity is represented. Our mediator is seated by the Father. Our priest to intercede. Our king to rule, protect, and supply. But how does that actually impact the individual believer? And that is through the Spirit. And so the first act of Christ in his exaltation is that he and the Father as an expression of the love for the, of the Father for the Son and the expression of the Father and Son's love for his people, they send the Spirit. And the Spirit comes. As the third person of the triune God, he comes to accomplish what the new covenant promised that God would accomplish. And he does that, we could say primarily, for love of the Father and of the Son. In the same way that the Son can say, I'm going to the cross because I love my Father and he gave me that command. So the Spirit is at work in every believer and he is at work across this world because he loves the Father and he loves the Son. But he also loves the church and in this great triune picture of love, he comes and he humbly, like the Son, he humbly and gladly points us to Christ in the same way that Christ pointed us to the Father and does not make himself center stage. Paul, in chapter 8 of Romans and in chapter 5 of Galatians, is going to explain to us that the way that the great fullness of Christ reaches your life this morning and this afternoon when you're driving home, if you are in Christ, the way that enabling power reaches you for obedience is a person, the Spirit. Of course, you can think of the things he does. He is the one who was sent to awaken you, to bring you from spiritual death to life, to, to make it so that spiritually you are able to be responsive to God. And you're no longer like a corpse in a casket that is unresponsive to everything. He's the one who opened your eyes. He's the one that gave you a new heart. Steve talked about it this morning. He's the one who freed you from sins in chaining lies, the, the kind of chains that were were in the, in the soul that we were happy with. He's the one that guaranteed that you could and would repent. That you would be brought near to God through the cross of Christ. He's the one who unites you to Christ spiritually, places you in Christ, Paul says, vitally. He unites you to Jesus as a body to a head. You're woven into Christ as your mediator. And it's not just a governmental representation. It's not just that he stands for me. It's that he is my life. I am in him, united to Christ. That's by the work of the Spirit. 
The Spirit is the one who is entrusted by the Lord to to daily guide you, to show you Jesus and transform you as you look at his image. He's the one who reproduces the qualities of Christ in your life. We call that the fruit of the Spirit. But if you read over those things, it's Christ-likeness. He's the one who supplies each moment everything the new covenant promises as you walk in sweet, humble, happy harmony with him. He takes the stuff off the page of the Bible and makes it your experience. So that's why Paul can say that God is at work in you through the Spirit daily to create in you the the will to obey and the ability to obey. And that's why Peter says in his first letter, 1 Peter 1, in verse 2, he talks about how we are saved, and he mentions the foreknowledge of God, that kind of knowledge that initiates a loving relationship before you were even born. And then he mentions the work of the Spirit, and he says this, we are saved by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that the Spirit sets you apart. And listen to this, in order to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled by his blood. But how does that actually work? How does, what do you do? Is it just automatic? Now, we're not talking about God's work for you, which Christ did on the cross, which Christ did in obeying the law. We're talking about God's work in you. That is the other half of redemption. Christ for me. Objective truths. Christ in me. Truths that I'm experiencing. And the Spirit is the one who's entrusted with the Christ in me. Now, I mentioned that there's two great passages Paul gives on this theme, and it's Romans 8 and Galatians 5. And this morning, we're going to look at Romans 8 and then just end with a glance at Galatians 5, because Galatians 5, when it talks about walking in the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, he's really just saying the same things that he's been saying in Romans 8 in a more succinct way. So we're going to focus on 8. And just look at chapter 5 for two verses quickly at the end. So when you're looking at your watch and you're hungry and I'm saying, okay, so that's the end of Romans 8. Now let's turn to Galatians. Don't don't pass out, you know. You will be fed. We'll make it. But quickly, we're going to just mention two verses in uh, Galatians. So let's look at Romans 8. If you have your Bibles, turn there. In Romans 8, Paul speaks in some ways about the Spirit with with such clarity that we don't find anything else in the Bible to compare. If you want to understand how you are to respond to the work of the Spirit and what He's doing in you and why that produces any hope at all and and, and what we're to expect or not to expect, Romans 8 is the place. Let me give you some of the context. In Romans chapter 5, Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the appointed representative who is the, the, the counter to the other appointed representative for humanity. So he says he is the last Adam. First Corinthians. What does he mean? Well, there's the first Adam who represents humanity and what he does in obeying or disobeying God affects everybody that's connected with him. And since he sinned, we are all born under the wrath of God and 
under the influence of sin. So it's guilt and it's power is what you were born into, whether you wanted it or not. But the good news is that that is not the only option. There is another representative, and God chooses the representative, not us. And the covenant of grace, this, this, this contract of unexpected love from the king that we've lived against, the covenant of grace has a different representative, Jesus. Real man, but also God, who obeyed the law perfectly, satisfying it, paid the debt of sin that we've earned, and is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. If you, by faith, are connected to Christ, if the Spirit has united you to Christ by faith, then everything Christ did as a mediator impacts you. Just like what Adam did as a representative impacted you. So chapter 5 talks about this two mediators and the result. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are in a whole new realm. And there is a whole new you. And chapter 6 picks up with that and says that you, the new you, the old you died with Christ and the new you has been raised by virtue of being united to Christ. So there's a new identity so we still have the same nature, we're still human, and we still struggle with sin, but there is a completely new identity in Christ, in the kingdom of grace, grace ruled by the king of grace. And this newness, Paul says in Romans 6, means you can never go back to belonging to sin, to its kingdom, its realm, its it has no right to you. It cannot be your master again. You can sin. You can present your body as an instrument of selfishness again. You can think selfish thoughts. You can have selfish responses. You can choose selfish choices. You can sin as a Christian. But you can never go back to belonging to that realm and being mastered by sin. Such good news. Now, what if after reading Romans 7, you think, Great! That means no more problems. I'm a Christian. I'm in Christ. Sin is not my master. I'm ruled by grace. I, I am headed to this just this, this soaring, happy, trouble-free life. And you're not. So Paul gives us a parenthesis, chapter 7. Because really, the end of chapter 6 is picked up at the beginning of chapter 8. If you read the end of chapter 7 and read chapter 8, verse 1, it's like, wow, Paul, how did we get there? But if you read the end of chapter 6 and then jump to chapter 8, verse 1, you think, okay, he's picking up his argument. So chapter 7 is a parenthesis. Chapter 7 answers this question. If I am alive in Christ and the old me is dead and I'm in a new realm and I have a new position before God and sin won't be my master, will obedience be easy? Can I take the law now and fix me all the way? And chapter 7 shows that while you are a new person in Christ, still the law will not fix your life. It will not fix your lifestyle. It will not change your struggle with sin. It cannot. 
So at the end of chapter 7, Paul says, "Who I, I'm, I'm in the midst of this kind of, I'm being pulled left and right at times, you know. At times I want to do what's right. And so I am in wholehearted agreement with what God says is right and beautiful. But then I seem to make choices that act as if I'm not in agreement. And he talks about his flesh. Now, we need a definition. What does Paul mean when he talks about flesh? Well, sometimes he's talking about living in this body. Because I'm in a world and in a body that is always susceptible to temptation. As long as we're here, that will be uh, a real issue. But Paul also speaks about the flesh against the spirit when he talks about the old nature. If we could just say it that way. That's probably the simplest. Or what the Puritans called indwelling sin. In other words, in a Christian, there is still something going on some leftovers of the old life where there is in us the constant ability or propensity to be able to go back to a fleshly way or to an earthly way or to a self-centered old John, old you way of living. And uh, a man named Stuart Oliot who wrote a commentary on Romans, I think Stuart Oliot is still alive. He's, an, he's getting pretty old now. He's an Englishman. And uh, he's so simple, but here's how he describes it. The flesh or the old nature or the old way of living is the, is the way of living that is characterized by this. You wake up in the morning and you say, me, me, what's in this for me? You know, you look at your spouse and you think, me, me, what's in it for me? You look at your kids. What's in it for me? You look at your job. You look at your church. Me, me, what's in it for me? And that summarizes the old way of living. The new way of living, a way of holiness, is him. Him. What's in it for him? So Paul says the law just does not have any strength to put to death, me, me, what's in it for me? Even though it shows you that that's wrong. That brings us to chapter 8. So look at chapter 8, and we're going to go verse by verse, 1 through 4, and then we'll kind of throw 5 through, seven, five through 8 together. Paul is picking up the argument from chapter, 16, uh, chapter 6, and he's saying, Oh, you are alive in Christ and you are free from the dominance of the law and you are ruled by grace. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, not the law, not the Ten Commandments, not anything about the law, that's not going to fix you. How are you going to walk the path of obedience? How will you obey God and His commands? Well, the map doesn't give you the strength. It's the Spirit. One thing you'll notice if you, if you go through and in the New American Standard, there is a clear, distinct difference between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Well, one of them is this. In chapter 7, the Spirit, capital S, referring not to your in, interior, you know, the Spirit of man, but the Spirit of God. Capital S, Spirit, appears one time in chapter 7. Compare that to how many times law appears. Chapter 8, capital S, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, appears 17 times. It ought to kind of, you know, be unmistakable. The great 
hopelessness of chapter 7, I can't seem to fix myself, even though I'm alive in Christ and I'm in a new realm. I'm, I'm taking the law. It's not working still. Maybe I misunderstood chapter 6. No, there was one more thing Paul needed to tell you. Chapter 8, the person. I think one simple way of summarizing it is this. The life, the new life of the new you in the, in the new realm of Christ's kingdom. I have a new king and a new life and a new identity. I still have the same nature. I will live obediently and not be the slave of sin because, chapter 6, I have that new position. I'm not in that old kingdom anymore. Chapter 8. You will be able to walk obediently, not just because of the new position, that's so wonderful, but because of a new person at work in you, the Spirit. And that's where we come to this question of, well, okay, but so how does it work? How do I live in conjunction with the work of the third person of the Trinity who indwells a believer? And that's what Romans 8 is going to focus on. So chapter 8, verse 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The first word, therefore, we're picking up with chapter 6's argument. You're alive in Christ. You are in Christ, not in Adam. You are in the realm of grace, not in the realm of sin. You are ruled by Christ. You're not ruled by the law. There's no hope in the law fixing you. But Christ fixes you. The law couldn't change you from the, from the realm of Adam and sin over into the realm of grace. But Christ could. Therefore, because of all he said about union with Christ, no condemnation is ever again possible for the Christian. If you are in Christ, united to him by faith, then you cannot experience God's condemnation, ever. But what does he mean by the word condemnation? In the Greek, the word can be used in a couple of ways. The simplest and most obvious way is that condemnation is the exact opposite of justification. So condemnation is standing before a judge, and the judge looks at the facts and says, you are guilty before this law. You are guilty before me. And justification is when God looks at the facts of your life, looks at the facts of Christ that is your representative and says, you are not guilty with my law. You are not guilty with me. That's the simplest use. But in Romans 8, in verse 1, the use, I believe, I agree with the the writers that say this. I think that it, it is true. While that simple union with Christ and the declaration is at the foundation of it, Paul's going to expand all through chapter 8. He's going to expand on that theme to include what justification directly affects or what non-condemnation directly affects. In other words, in the, in the Greek, the word can also mean more than just awaiting a a trial before a judge and the judge declares a person to be wrong. You're guilty. It also includes the sentencing. So in the Greek, the word is not just you are declared guilty, but you are now sentenced by the judge. And whatever sentencing is appropriate 
is caught up in that word condemnation. So it's not just the court scene, it's everything that's attached, everything that follows the court scene. When Paul says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in Romans 8, it is not just talking about you are free from the fear of being declared wrong with God. It is saying that the work of Jesus Christ and well, the work of the triune God in rescuing you deals not only with your guilt, but also with the enslavement to sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, God chose the judgment. It wasn't just automatic. And the judgment was that they would die. Spiritually, they died immediately. And of course, physically, they began to die. But it wasn't just that they're spiritually dead and that they are judged as people who are not right with God, but then there were present consequences. Sin would become your master. You become a slave of the thing that promised to make you happy. You believed sin, not God. And what you thought would be your friend has become your tormentor. And every one of us was born under guilt and under the mastery of sin. But as Romans 6 says, Christ changes that. And Romans 8 explains, it is impossible for you to go back to being under the, under the curse of God. And it is impossible for you to be going back under the mastery of sin, not just because you have a new position in Christ, but because you have a new person at work. All right, so that's the big summary. Therefore, now, Paul then follows in what, in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, Paul then follows up that enormous statement by explaining how that can be true. And you know he's doing that because look at verse 2, look at verse 3, and look at verse 4, and look at verse 5, and 6, and 7, all right? Verse 2, for the law. Verse 3, for what the law, verse 4, so that, it's going to talk about the purpose. Verse 5 picks back up with for those. Verse 6, for the mind. Verse 7, because, now that's the New American Standard, but you see what Paul's doing? These verses that follow this, this amazing statement, sin will not be your uh, everlasting curse and it will not master you. You will not ever be under God's condemning uh, declaration or sentence again because of Christ. You're in him. And then Paul has to back that amazing statement up over and over saying for, 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 because. In other words, he's explaining. He's going to give you his reasons after he makes this statement. In Christ, in Christ, represented by Christ. Alive in Christ, it is impossible for you to be in the realm of condemnation and sin, and it is impossible for you to live daily under the condemnation of God or rule of sin. That leads to his, his explanations. Verse 2, for... The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And so he's going to explain, why isn't it that a Christian can ever be mastered by sin again? Well, verse 2. Now, we need to be careful with the word law. The word law here 
in the New American Standard, lower cap, lower, lower L, all right? Not capital L, little L. Because it's not talking about the law of God. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What in the world is he talking about? Well, something the Holy Spirit does sets you free from something that sin and death does. What's he talking about? The word law. In this situation, he's not talking about the moral law or the ceremonial law. or the. He's not saying the law of God. He's saying the law of the Spirit or the law of sin and death. And by the way, sin and death, the law of sin, which is always connected with death and all the fear that goes with that. So let's just simplify it. The law of the Spirit, the law of sin. What does it mean? Law speaks of a governing power within you. There is a principle of action, if we use big, big words. What is the fountain of your choices? What is that, that governing influence in your soul that fashions you and authoritatively guides you down the road? There is something at work in every one of us. There is a law. Is it the law of sin and death that is a governing power within you so that you do wake up every morning and say, me, me, what's in it for me? Even if you are a little embarrassed to admit it, or do you wake up and say, him, him, what's in, li- what's in my life for him? How can I live for him? Because you're under the law of the spirit. Law is an authoritative influence, a governing power or a regulating power. It is spiritual. You can't see it. It's internal. But it is constantly at work in you. It is motivating you right now. It is influencing you right now. It is fashioning your character at its deepest level. So let's look at those two laws, those two regulating ruling principles or powers. There's the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. Paul speaks about that, and we already read about it in Romans 7. There's this law in me, he says. There's something going on inside of me. My brain knows that the law of God is perfect, and I want to obey it, but I seem to be under an influence that's leading in a different direction. I need to be rescued from this daily, and the rescue is Christ. And then chapter 8 explains how that is through the Spirit. The law of sin and death. Paul found that indwelling sin or that spiritual influence within that was sinful, that that still existed in him. And it still exists in Christians today. And the law of God is not able to deal with that. So there is a regulating influence, a motivating influence thing, a fashioning thing within all of us that makes us want to go back to me, me, what about me? Then there's another law. There is another regulating influence. There is another governing power at work inside a believer, and that is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, a person. And he's described as the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That is so significant. Paul is not leaving behind 
the fact that everything that you have is because you are united to Christ who finished his work. Paul's not leaving that behind and now talking about something totally different. Well, now let's talk about the spirit. He's saying he is the spirit of God sent by father and son. But who is he to you? Well, we don't say, well, the spirit is God. He's not one third God. He is fully God. He possesses with the father and the son equally, eternally. And, you know, at the same moment, all the fullness of the divine nature. Well, that's true. But who is he to you? And to you, he is the spirit of life in Christ. What distinguishes his activity in your life more than anything else is that he is bringing life, real life, to the Christian. And that real life is sourced in Christ. The spirit of life in Christ, providing all that you need for spiritual life, by virtue of uniting you to Jesus and applying that to you moment by moment, that is the governing influence that overthrows the governing influence of old sinful ways. So look at the fact that Paul says in verse two, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The only way that a Christian wakes up and obeys God's commands and is set free from the present power of sin and the old selfish ways of living is that the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is a much mightier governing power within your soul than the influence of sin ever was. Because the Spirit is supplying all that Christ has purchased for you and giving it to you, you do not have to wake up and live under the influence of selfishness and sinfulness. Chapter 6, you will never be mastered by sin again because you are not in its realm. You don't belong to that old realm, that old master anymore. You're in a new country. Chapter eight, you will not live like you did in the old country under the mastery of sin because you have a new person at work within you. Now let's look at chapter six, verse five, because I want us to see how Paul talks about it there to help us to make sure we've got the right understanding in chapter eight. So chapter 6, Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have become united with him, with Christ, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. When you embrace Christ, then what happened to him on the cross impacts you. It kills the old you. That identity is gone. And what happened when God raised Christ from the dead impacts you. There is a new you, a new creation. And you will never again be the old. You can sin, but you can never go back to who you were. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self, okay, keep that in your mind, old self, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin, 
keep that in mind in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Let's just stop there. Verse 6 explains this mystery. How can the old you, Christian, be dead? Well, because I'm united to Christ and what happened to him impacts me. And it does away with the old me. And God will never see me again under that identity. That John is gone. I still can sin. Why can I still sin if the old John is gone? Well, as long as we're in this life, living in this body, in this world, we are temptable and we still struggle with the old indwelling sin. But what Christ did on the cross dealt with that also. Look at how he says it. Old self crucified so that body of sin might be done with, away with. Body of sin and old self are not synonymous. Body of, uh, old self is your old identity. Body of sin is that sinful nature, that, that ability to be mastered, that indwelling influence that we hate now that we're Christians. And Paul does not say that body of sin, that old indwelling sin, that old influence of sin that still is in a Christian while we're on this journey, well, that has been completely crucified with Jesus too. But no, he said, on the, Christ, on, on the cross, Christ crucified the old you, that's once and forever done. In order that the body of sin might be done away with. The word done away with is not the same word as crucified. It's not buried. It's not gone. It's a very particular word. Do you remember when we read through Romans 6 a long time ago? Lloyd-Jones spends so much time on this. It's very helpful. You can go back and read him. But the Greek word is pretty simple. It means to be done away with or to be fatally weakened, to make something lazy and lethargic. You have in you, in a sense, a, a sinfulness in your nature still, and that's being daily dealt with by the Spirit. But until you see Christ face to face, you're going to have that, and you are going to be able to sin. But when Christ died on the cross, he did not just remove your guilt he also dealt a blow to that old sinful nature. It is not completely removed from your experience because you can still sin. But here's what happened to it. It's like he took an ax and cut the root. And now this giant tree of selfishness that was the heart of your existence before, now it is withering and dying. And it won't be all the way gone until you see Christ and the transformation is complete. But it is dying now. It is being done away with now. It is being made weak and lethargic. What used to be this irresistible master, I have to have what I want in life. I have to. 
I'm sorry if it's not right. I'm sorry if it leads to divorce. I'm sorry if it destroys my kids. I'm sorry if I have to cheat my boss. I'm sorry if if I have to fake it at church. I have to have what makes me happy. To exist, you don't understand. I have to have it. I know other people shouldn't do this, but it's essential for me. My favorite sin, my secret shameful thing, I have to have it. It was a master. Now, Christ chops the root. And it's still able to tempt you, but it never can command you like it used to. You can, by God's grace, say no to self and yes to Christ. It is mortally wounded. That sinful nature, that old way of thinking and living, that me, me, that flesh way of living, it has been dealt a mortal blow. He has poisoned that tree at the cross. It is being made powerless, little by little. Now, those two principles, all right? By the Spirit, there is an active power that enables me to say no to the old ruling power, sin. And that is the only way. The law does not give you that. It just shows you where to walk. It doesn't give you the strength to say no to sin. The Spirit does. And as the Spirit is walked with in Galatians 5, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, verse 2, the law or the governing influence of the Spirit has freed you moment by moment from the governing influence of sin. Stuart Oliot in his book uses a very simple illustration and I found it very helpful. He, so he says, now think of this word law. Think of the law of gravity. You go, you've got a flight somewhere, you go to the airport, you walk down the ramp, you get on the plane, you sit in the plane. That massive plane, however many hundreds of tons it weighs, that massive plane is right when you're sitting there waiting for everybody to get on, it is under the dominant law of gravity. And you and every other person inside that plane are living under the dominance of gravity. Nobody is floating around in your plane. And the plane is not floating. But then the door shuts and the engines start to whirl. And as it goes down the runway, there is a new thing happening. The principle, or if we could call it a law. The principle of aerodynamics, of thrust and lift. And the way the, the, way the wings are shaped and the way the wind hits those wings. And it's... Shocking to see this thing that weighs hundreds or thousands of tons. Suddenly it's up in the air. And you're flying way above the clouds. And for all practical purposes, it looks like that plane is not under the rule of law, uh, the law of gravity anymore. Nor are you. But you understand that there is a greater influence, a greater principle at work. Thrust, lift, aerodynamics. It's not that a Christian can't be susceptible to sin's lies. It's that as we walk with the Spirit, there is a far greater principle, greater governing power at work in the believer. In the new realm, a new person is at work in me, and I do not have to listen to sin's lies. I can obey God. 
The law, verse 3, could never do it. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. All right. I'm running way out of time, so let me say. Verse 3, the law, the rules, never, never overruled the influence of sin. They didn't even make it smaller or weaker. But Christ did. God actually does rescue you from that constant temptation or mastery of sin, day by day, hour by hour, if you are in Christ, he did it by sending Christ to obey the law, to die on the cross, to send forth his son. And when Christ died on that, uh, to send forth the spirit, when Christ died on that cross, he condemned sin. He, he dealt with sin. Amazing. When, when you and I have sinned, God did not, the father did not put you on a cross. He put his sinless son on the cross and punished him in the place of the believer. And so sin is dealt with. Not just its guilt, but its strength. That was crushed at the cross. The law could expose sin. The law could say that sin deserved, uh, the sinner deserved to be condemned. But the law could never crush sin. Not the sacrifices, not the special feasts and worship days, and not the Ten Commandments. It is too weak. It is not designed for that. Clear so far. Let's get to the last point, and we'll, we'll make this our stopping spot because it has everything we really need. Verse 4, new position, new person means I don't have to live for myself. What's the purpose of all that? If you can understand what God's purposes are in the way he's dealt with you, then you can walk in happy agreement with your king. If you don't understand the purposes, it's very likely that you're trying to use what God has given for some alternate purpose, and, you know, it's not working. What's the purpose? Verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, Christ has fulfilled all the law's requirements for righteousness' sake. Perfect obedience was required for righteousness if you're going to get righteousness from the law. He's already satisfied that. And by being united to him, that righteousness is, in a sense, shared with his people. So we are justified. Imputed righteousness. Righteousness placed on my account that someone else accomplished. But what about the day-to-day -day requirement of the law? What about loving God? What about loving people? Well, that is also being accomplished. Not in a sinlessly perfect way because I need to pay the debt. The debt's gone. But in a genuine, real way, in the life of the believer, the work of the Spirit guarantees that what the law has always been pointing you toward, loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, that will be accomplished. He will change you, and you will want and be able to do that.
Remember 1 Peter. Saved by the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ. We are able to obey God's law, to follow His map at home, at work, at church. Not in order to gain life, to gain forgiveness, but from life, because He's forgiven me. Not in order to get into his family, but because I've already been freely adopted into his family. The love that the law has always been pointing toward. You see it when a person embraces Christ. It's not immediate. It's not perfect. But it's there. It's growing. It's maturing. And you see an ever-increasing conformity to Christ. The Spirit's working in us. And you see that person loving God in a way they never loved him before. And you see that person beginning to love other people in a way they never loved before. The the requirement of the law, obedience to God's moral law, is occurring because not the map, but the person who gave us the map, the Spirit of Christ, is at work in you. Like a ruling, governing power. And verse 5 through 8 basically say, that is why outside of Jesus Christ on your own, you can't obey the law. You don't want to obey the law. You can't please God. And that doesn't really bother you because you are completely opposed to all of that. Your mind is set on the flesh, not this body, set on getting the me, me, what's in this for me kind of life. That brings you to Galatians 5 where he just says, In verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. It doesn't reverse. If someone asks you, are you walking by the Spirit or in the Spirit or with the Spirit? The Greek word can be translated all all those three ways. Are you living by the Spirit? Are you living in the Spirit? Are you living with the Spirit of Christ? You might think, well, hold on, let me clean up my life first and then I'll really be walking in the Spirit. It's actually the exact opposite. Christ has made you new, put you in a new realm and given you His Spirit. If you will walk with Him, you will not be fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Or what Romans 8 says, the law of the Spirit within, that governing power will free you from the governing power of sin. And then verse 25 in Galatians 5 says the same thing, but it just uses a different kind of logic. If we live by the Spirit, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm alive because of the work of the Spirit. I've been born again. Fine, Paul says, let us walk by the Spirit. And the word walk there is unique. It's not the same word that's used every other place. Walking, all right, peripateo, to walk around. This is a different Greek word. It means to order, like in an army, to take a military group and to order all the soldiers into formation and to march them in a certain way. In other words, it means being very intentional. Line up your thoughts, line up your choices, line up your words, line up your imagination, line up your memories, line up your responses in the home, at church, and at work, and on the ball field. Line them all up in a way that pleases God by the Holy Spirit. Martin Luther, when he read Galatians, it led to his conversion. He said, Galatians is my book. Remember that? Luther wrote this. 
as a Christian. He said, thinking back, when I was a monk, I thought by and by that I would utterly cast off if at any time, uh, sorry, by and by, I was utterly cast off if at any time I felt the lust of the flesh or any evil emotion. So when he was a monk, he thought, if he still had those old desires, he thought, I'm not a Christian at all because I had a bad thought. If at that time I had only understood these sentences from Paul, I should not have been so miserably tormented, but should have thought and said to myself, as I have to do commonly now, Martin, he's preaching to himself, Martin, thou shalt not be utterly without sin, for thou hast flesh, and thou shalt therefore feel the battle. But do not despair. Resist it strongly. How? Romans 8. The Spirit. What do I do? Sit back and wait for him to work? No. I wake up in the morning and I say, I need you. I yield to you. I walk in harmony with you, depending moment by moment for you, Spirit of Christ, to give me everything Christ has provided so that I can obey. Well, may the Lord help us move from page to life. Hebrews 13, we read, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.